The Boulderista is a podcast that celebrates the Boulder, Colorado lifestyle by highlighting local influencers and the inspiring impact they have on our community and celebrating the local traditions that make this the happiest place to live in the U.S. I am your host, Sherry Figueroa, and I invite you to explore what makes Boulder, Boulder. My guest today is Karen Van Vuren, co-founder of Colorado's first independent holistic funeral home. The natural funeral helps families to make choices that are in harmony with their values, bringing healing and reconnection to the cycle of life. With the awareness that many current death care practices are harmful to the environment, their mission is to minimize the impact of our final footprints. They provide natural, sustainable funeral options, such as green burials and cremations, reverent body care, and intentional memorial services. Karen's nonprofit, Natural Transitions, further educates through online publications, conferences, grief groups, and other inspirational events. She is the director of two documentaries, Dying Wish and Go in Peace, that bring awareness to the challenges of dying with dignity in our modern world. Here to discuss the importance and the beauty of honoring death in a meaningful and sustainable way is Karen Van Vuren. Welcome, Karen. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. It's such an important topic. I feel like um, it's something that people don't want to talk about until they have to. Um, and then they're thrown into this very traditional style of end-of-life care and death care. So I'm so excited to get into those details with you. Yeah, excited to go there. So first, let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Mm. As you can tell by my accent, I hail from somewhere else, which is London, the UK. I actually was born on the North American continent to two immigrant parents. My father was from the Netherlands, my mother from England, and I was born there. And then because my brother, who was born a couple of years after I was, was very sick, we ended up going back to England so my mother could be with her parents. and. I grew up in a North London working class area, and then destiny brought me to Boulder. Mm. So how did you get to Boulder? Well, <laughs> let's how talk about I, that destiny. How did I get to Boulder? Um, I, I traveled a lot in my 20s to Europe. Uh, I did European languages and worked in Europe. and had this longing to go to Asia. So I came to Boulder via Asia. I had this longing to go to Asia and I was working in uh, television and radio production at the time as a news journalist. And I had a friend who was in Hong Kong and worked for an English language television station and said, oh, just come out to Asia. I'm, I'm sure I can get you a job. So I went to Hong Kong and got a job at this uh, TV station, English language TV station doing production. And then I worked for a newspaper there for a while, writing features, and was there for a year. But I had stopped off in Nepal on my way to Hong Kong and did not get to trek in the Himalayas and really wanted to experience that. So I thought, well, on my way back to England, I'm going to go for a trek. And I stopped in Kathmandu. I had um, a very, very... Um, uncomfortable rickshaw ride to Kathmandu Airport. 
and it's totally calm. There's no rush. People are just sitting in the waiting room and everyone is Nepali apart from this one skinny, <laughs> gawky, turns out to be American. And I sit down near him and he says, you don't have to rush. We're not going anywhere <laughs> soon. <laughs> I, I got talking to this this man and he sort of had verbal diarrhea and I thought he must be so lonely. <laughs> uh, and he told me he was in Peace Corps and worked in this hill village. And anyway, um, I'll, I'll cut to the chase here and say that we ended up getting together. I ended up living in Nepal for a year in a converted goat shed. There's more to this story, but I'll say that it was my husband who had actually been in Denver previously, uh, had, had been doing his master's at DU and was a skier, who when it came time for us to leave Nepal, said we should try Colorado. And I said, well, I guess I prefer some mountains to going back to London and why not? And anyway, and then we came to Boulder and I said, yes. This feels like my place. So you arrive in Boulder, and um, you, it sounds like you were really into this kind of uh, activism lifestyle. How did you get from there to this um, kind of work that you do now with end of life care? From journalism to journalism, death. From news journalism to death, no less. That's right. Uh, how did I get there? Well, uh, I would say I can say this. I think in an, a Boulder environment that I was really directed by spirit because. It, it, it wasn't, there was one thing that happened and I immediately said, yes, that's where I need to put my energy. I, I came to live in Boulder and then we had kids and when I had my children, I really started thinking about my brother's death. My brother, who was a couple of years younger, his name was Dirk and he was born, he was born healthy. He was born in a hospital and Dirk, along with a number of other babies, contracted hepatitis. And my understanding many years later from my father was that these, these babies died. My brother was very, very sick. His liver was really compromised. And there was some kind of surgery that happened. It, it was at the time when parents didn't really ask questions about what is this for? And I still, to this day, don't know why they operated on him. But after the surgery, they, my parents were told he wouldn't live very long. How old was he? He was a new. He was a newborn at that mm. time. Like we're talking, like at birth, he got hepatitis, mm. and so they were not expecting him to live very long. They also were informed that he most likely would be mentally and physically handicapped severely that's the those are the that's the term we used at the time and indeed he was uh, and this child that was supposed to die at birth lived for nine years mm. and was in a lot of pain for um, his short life it was in the days before they had palliative care and hospice so anyway that was the environment I grew up in so I actually grew up with somebody who was dying and yet I was a young child, right? It was just my life and it wasn't, I, I, I don't remember thinking, oh, this sucks. 
ever. It was just, this is how life is, right? I have this sick brother. My parents have to give my brother attention. And when he did die, <clears throat> it was it was a scenario where I am standing in the living room. Sorry, I'm standing in the hallway of our house in North London. And my father is there and my mother is there. And my father had been so angry that they wouldn't turn off life support. He was on life support because my father saw there is there he was emaciated you know his organs were shutting down and my dad just saw so much suffering in in this situation and my dad wanted wanted life support to be turned off and they wouldn't do it and then i guess they did it and i knew as a child i knew that the phone call was coming before the phone rang wow right i i just knew the phone is going to ring and surely enough, it did. My father picked it up. And my dad was this stoic Dutchman who had been 14 years old when he lied about his age and, and actually ended up fighting in World War II. So he was a child soldier. So he had a lot of stoicism. He'd stuffed a lot of his own pain away, the, the horrors that he had experienced. And he turned to us and he said, Dirk has gone. That's... That's, that's life. we got to get on with it. It was my brother. It was my children that catalyzed me thinking about my brother. And then, honestly, just one day I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to focus on end of life. I'm not sure that it's done in the, in the best way it could be. I want what my family did not have for others. So I really want to be in service for others. So they have healing experiences, they get to have ritual, they get to have support. And also you get yeah. to heal as well. Right? Yeah, it comes it comes full circle in an, an experience yeah. for you to be able to process mm -hmm. all, everything that happened to you and your brother um, while serving others. Yeah. What a well, beautiful opportunity. Well, in the giving, we're receiving. We know that. And, and for sure, for me now, when I work with families, you know, and I show up and we all show up as a team and we're there to be strength in response to their their pain and their grief um, I feel I really do feel that it's it's putting back into the world this goodness and and I know that I'm really supported and strengthened by by being a, a vehicle I guess for for goodness and for love well, let's talk about the natural funeral and let's get into logistics because it's so interesting. I did not realize before researching for this interview how toxic the traditional uh, funeral process can be, the burials and cremation. So educate us about what it means to have a holistic, natural funeral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I use the word conventional because there are traditional ways that we have cared for our dead, right, that are natural, that have community participation, that are healing. And then there are conventional ways which really originated around the mid 
19th century in this country if we were really focusing on the United States. And before the Civil War, there wasn't what we call now modern embalming, which is using formaldehyde and dyes and other preservatives to temporarily preserve a body, right? Before that time, um, people died at home. They were cared for by their loved ones. They got buried in the back 40 often in this, in this country. You know, modern cremation, there's been cremation through the ages in different cultures, of course, and different spiritual faith traditions have uh, preferred cremation or it's been in harmony with their particular belief system that the flame is a sacred way to, um, uh, I hate that word, dispose of, <laughs> um, to, uh, to allow for final disposition is the technical term. But um, before the Civil War, we really were much simpler um, in handling the body and, and, and we did things very naturally. And during the Civil War, because they wanted to be able to bring soldiers home from the battlefield so their families could have closure and you know, have their own services, that was when the experimentation with formaldehyde and and other substances, some of which were very harmful, like mercury and arsenic to the embalmers. That's when they came up with these these methods. And it also removed the person from instead staying at home for the care. Suddenly you had a professional who was, we have to I have to do this, you know, in my environment and and it all went hand in hand with the the move towards eventually in the 20th century people dying more in facilities and you know not at home um so but this is actually a more of a return to tradition as yes, opposed to yes. what's evolved yes, in the conventional exactly. manner well you know it's ironic to now be in a in the funeral industry and i've been doing natural death care for 20 years it's ironic to be in the industry that for so long I <laughs> was educating about, uh, actually educating about choices more than anything else, because I felt really strongly that people who were vulnerable at death and were interacting with industry professionals were not always presented with possibilities that fit with who they were. And I had that experience myself. My mother, I was told by a funeral director, you have to embalm if you want to see your mother. Now I know she was a little old woman. She was, she died of natural causes, pretty emaciated. She, it would have been fine for me to see her, but I didn't know, I wasn't educated. So the, the, I've always been an educator first and foremost. And I feel that's even my role now um, in the funeral industry, you know, as a, funeral director and um, these these ways of being with death are are very ancient the way the ones that we're now bringing back to families that you can have time with your loved one you don't have to be rushed they can be wrapped in a shroud they don't you don't have to buy this you know rainforest sourced casket that um, costs thousands of dollars beyond your budget and you can buy something that is sustainably sourced, made by a local craftsmen, and you can have an unembalmed body that is there for you to interact with, to take leave of, to honor, you know, all of 
all of these things that are not necessarily presented to families because it's an industry that likes to you know, likes to control a bit too much. So there are great funeral directors out there. I'm, I'm not painting everyone with the same brush, but I, I do, I, I just feel so passionate about um, choices. Reverent body care is also actually a very ancient practice. If you think that when people died at home, there were often wise, you know, mostly it would be women, <laughs> wise women, who would be there for the births and there for the deaths. And I, I think this is the case in many cultures, actually. And they would be the ones who would come and have this final washing of the body. So this is not, this is not you know, a sanitizing, although, of course, it could have that effect. It's not something we're doing to make someone clean necessarily, but it's, it's almost like a a washing with love that we're talking about. It's um, uh, something that I would say we hold ceremonially. So it beyond just here's a bowl and here's a washcloth with some you know soap or maybe some water with essential oils in and you wash and that could be really beautiful still too. We give families the option of holding it for them as a ritual where you know, we're going to gather, we're going to light a candle, we're going to speak some words that are loving and meaningful, maybe spiritual, may just be, you know, something from the heart. And then this washing of the body is really a, an honoring of the physical remains, an opportunity for us to recognize as well that there is something that is not there, right? That, that whatever enlivened this, this being has, has now moved on. And so we're, we're recognizing that, we're honoring, we're washing the feet, and we're maybe reflecting. And th this is for families to do. We're, we don't take over unless they want us to do this. It's here's the washcloth for you. This is your loved one. And they're remembering where the feet walked in life, whom the hands touched, you know, whom the eyes gazed upon. And we're often standing back. We're bearing witness. We're inviting. And often for families, they, they, ha they, they may not have any I idea, how is this going to be for me? Am I going to be freaked out? And yet they're so... They're so surprised that this is just, this feels so right. They just feel so much love from this act, and it's it's super healing. And It sounds and, like it can be very empowering for a family as well, when oftentimes, especially just in conventional ways, the body is just taken away, mm -hmm. um, and you're barely able to sort of say goodbye. Um, what a beautiful way to honor the body and to provide that space for them and it sounds like space and time that perhaps in a more conventional setting they wouldn't and have again it's, it's kind of an act of it is an act of blessing and 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 we have some families where you know they might not want to participate in the washing they might want us to do that but then they get to have an opportunity to just you know anoint the hands or anoint the forehead or something like that so it doesn't have to be a big, grandiose ritual, actually. 
that, that makes a difference. It can be something where afterwards they feel that was a really it was a really hard loss, but I'm I'm so glad glad I had that that time and that container as well. Because I will say that as a funeral home, we have a very high aesthetic, so we really feel that having natural beauty in our surroundings is very important and can can impact how we feel and how the room feels and the, the energy there, the atmosphere. And so to walk into a space and our chapel in our sanctuary space in Lafayette is a pine beetle wood chapel and uh, we'll have, um, you know, essential oils that are diffusing in there and silks and, and, and just there are there are nature elements in that room that are really comforting, actually. It's true. I mean, when I came for a visit and you're kind enough to give me a tour, it felt very light. It felt like there was spiritual presence there. You guys were wearing white. The space was beautiful and clean. There was art on the walls. Um, it was very inspiring and welcoming, and it just felt safe and natural as opposed to you know, the few times I've been to a funeral home, it's felt so dark. Um, everything is, you know, just very dark and dressed in black, and the energy is very heavy. And I did not feel that way at all in visiting your space. So I do think mm -hmm. that it comes across in Thank your you. space. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So what is a green burial? What is green yeah. cremation? Yeah, sure. Conventional burial in a typical cemetery, I would say, involves putting the body... Uh, the casket at a depth of six feet. The casket could be, you know, as I said, it could be non-biodegradable, it could be steel. Um, usually there's a requirement to have a covering for the gravesite, a vault, which can be made of fiberglass, cement, or could be plastic even, and that kind of pops over the gravesite to enable the landscaping, the conventional landscaping to happen, which is usually involves in this country anyway, mowing a lawn. Mm -hmm. And fertilizing and, <laughs> and pesticides fertilizing. and all those good right. things. And uh, anyway, the practice is to put this covering there. And then, of course, the cemetery is not necessarily low resource use, right? It's going to be pesticide, as you said, and fertilizer. So in contrast to that green burial, which is the way the Quakers still do it, in, you know, go to Pennsylvania, go to a Quaker cemetery, they're putting the body in a simple pine box, something biodegradable, and um, it's going to be a, a more shallow grave with green burial, so there's more microbial activity that can happen so the body can really return to the earth more easily. There is no vault covering the grave, and, you know, ideally with green burial, you would have a more sustainable, natural landscaping practice as well. We've worked with a cemetery in Longmont that has a green section where you can go in the earth um, without a vault and it's at that four feet depth and um, there's natural landscaping there. It's a it's actually an established cemetery. It has a section that is you know regular with vaults etc mm -hmm. <laughs> and then there's another section where you do not need them and and then cremation, which now I think it's mostly chosen because it's seen as simpler, like you haven't got all the rigmarole of, of burial, right? And, and you've got to get the plot and you've got to get a casket or whatever. And cremation is quicker and it's 
it's less expensive and so people are choosing it for that reason but you know environmentally it's putting co2 into the atmosphere it's huge resource usage what i think is coming big time in the future because we have to look at the environmental impacts of how we um, take care of our dead at the end and what what happens to the body i really think that alkaline hydrolysis which is also known as water cremation is it's it's just got a um, catch on. That's using 95% water and 5% alkaline compounds like hydrogen, um, potassium hydroxide, uh, potash, to basically the body is broken down in the same way it would if it was buried for years, it, but it happens within the space of hours. And in the end, um, you have the bones in the same way you would with a fire cremation. The so the water from the water cremation is actually uh, pathogen-free. It's a, a extremely nutrient-rich liquid. So you are actually turned into fertilizer. And that that is something I've seen with families that have chosen water cremation is they really feel great about, well, my body is no longer something I need, and I'm turning it into something that's a blessing for the earth. And so this is, it sounds pretty um, forward thinking as far as a movement within the funeral industry. And you do educate um, others in this industry. Tell me more about that. Yeah. In 2003, I actually got, I, I, I wasn't... Um, right from the beginning wanting to enter the funeral industry. In fact, it was furthest from my mind. I, I started a nonprofit called Natural Transitions and the mission was to really educate, but at the time it was also to support kind of like a midwife. And now there are, there's this whole movement of death doulas and death midwives. And I think we were doing that then, but just not calling ourselves by that, that name. And so Natural Transitions was uh, founded, as I said, for education. So have put on workshops over the years, um, sacred death care workshops, to kind of de demystify, well, what can you do? And what, what are the possibilities? And what are the laws? And how do you do, how, do, how would you care for uh, someone who had died at home even? And so I've, I've taught workshops. I've started a magazine in, actually I didn't start the magazine, Tara Raphael, who was a volunteer for the nonprofit, started it and we've continued to have a great team of people helping get that out twice a year and there are different themes, we've done suicide, we've done veterans, children, pets, um, I put on conferences, we did the first Green Burial Conference, I think it was in 2008 and that brought together people from around the country who were passionate about Green Burial. So it was sort of a networking event and um, community building event. And then Natural Transitions also put on uh, a number of national natural death care conferences. And ultimately, that those conferences led to the founding of the National Home Funeral Alliance, which is a fabulous resource. Um, the website is homefuneralalliance.org. And you can find a lot about laws about find out about laws in your state and they have education programs let's um 
Let's come back to Boulder for a minute. And um, because I do real estate, I, I'd like to just touch on what neighborhood you live in, sort of why you love Boulder and why you love to live here and choose to live here. Well, I live near Wonderland Lake, which has been such a, a haven for me, for, for honestly my soul to be able to walk sometimes twice a day around Wonderland Lake and see the changes in the seasons, watch the birds flying overhead, hear the, today I was listening to the red wing, red wing blackbirds, which have such a, for me, such a happy song. That's, that's been a saving grace for me to live next to Wonderland Lake. And I would say in these times, especially, to be able to get outdoors and 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 witness, I would say, the cycle of life, right? Um, to to take in that there's there's death and rebirth happening all the time. I love having just a, a short walk away, a cafe, a shipping store, a little Mexican restaurant, Lucky's Bakery, Chinese <laughs> restaurant. My God, I'm, I mean, it's I I feel so blessed. I'm incredibly blessed. So Nat Geo named Boulder the happiest city in the United States in 2017. Coming full circle, and you've talked about why you feel blessed in your neighborhood, but why is Boulder in particular your happy place? We, we actually left Boulder in hmm, 1999 for a year, and it was open-ended. We went to the Netherlands, and I had I have family there. Uh, thinking, oh yes, a Viking culture, we love cycling and just, you know, European feel, maybe that's where we raise our kids. And honestly, after a year and a half, and there were some things that happened, but um, we, we made a pro and con list for what will be good about staying in the Netherlands and what will be good about going back to Boulder because really there was no question if we were going back to the US we were going back to Boulder and I can say right now I feel I would not be doing what I'm doing in the Netherlands it's a great country but the creative energy that exists in Boulder the entrepreneurial spirit the the mountains, the, 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 the power from this environment is really palpable and I, I just know from a destiny standpoint that for me to be doing what I'm doing, it, it, it had to be that I was here to, to have that happen. So the, crea- the creativity, uh, I, really, I really feel is why I'm here. So please tell the listeners where they can learn more about The Natural Funeral and connect with you. Yeah, we are, we're based in Lafayette. We're actually downtown off Festival Plaza. We're at the south side of Festival Plaza, and we're in 102 West Chester Street in Lafayette, 80026. So there are events. If you go to our website, thenaturalfuneral.com, you can find out what's happening, you know, check the calendar. And then Natural Transitions, if you're interested in getting the magazine, which, as I said, is twice a year, and you can get it free as an e-version, it's naturaltransitions.org, and we also have events on that website as well. And then the films are dyingwishmedia.com, and you can watch Dying Wish as streaming, 
and goinpeacefilm.org, which also is available as streaming. Well, I'm so grateful to have you, Karen, on the show to talk about such an important and often difficult subject to talk about. And it's true that there's such a disconnect and avoidance in society around death and dying. And I never really considered how toxic these conventional funeral practices can be. So thank you for educating us on the natural alternatives and for the deep care and support that you provide the community around death and the grieving process. So thank you so much for coming here. Thank you, it's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boulderista Podcast. For more info on today's episode, to nominate an influencer to be on the show, or to connect with me for your Boulder real estate needs, please visit us at www.theboulderista.com and on Facebook and Instagram at The Boulderista. While you're there, don't forget to like, comment, share, and subscribe. Until next time, stay happy, Boulder. <laughs>